Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Nathan Doyle. Nathan is a para swim coach and he has coached multiple Paralympic and Commonwealth Games medalists. So welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me, Liz. Oh, it's great to have you. We interviewed a few swimmers, but we actually haven't talked to a swim coach yet. So I, I realised we haven't really sort of gone through what para swimming is all about. So why don't you start us off with what your background is and how you got into coaching para swim? Yes, I guess my background, I obviously loved the water as, a, as I guess most Australians do and I guess swam myself to know high acclaim and I guess the progression for me was um, I was doing learn to swim teaching whilst at high school and I realized very quickly that it was a lot warmer and drier standing on pool deck coaching so I uh, <laughs> quickly made the, the quickly made the career decision that that's where I needed to be and yeah just so happened that you know I started coaching at the the center that I uh, that swam at and moved my way through the ranks you know I filled Lots of positions from a maintenance assistant to learn to swim, coaching, swim school manager, and just really kind of dived into any job that was there. And from there, I yeah just really found a passion for coaching and mm-hmm. kind of almost fell into, I guess, the power coaching component of it. I advertised for an assistant coach and lo and behold, Ellie Cole was one of the applicants and oh. really didn't know too much about kind of, uh, you know, her, her background or at least where she was and, you know, she was somewhat uh, stepping away and from para swimming. I think this is after London and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of from there we started talking about, you know, para swimming, where she's come from, what, you know, what her passions were in, in the sport and that kind of, yeah, really lit the fire for me in terms of my passion for para swimming and, you know, we went on a journey from about 2013 with Ellie with a double shoulder reconstruction and, mm-hmm. and all the fun things that happens with an athlete who, probably at the time was was probably disillusioned with the sport a little bit and you know I think um, what a great opportunity was for me to to grow and learn from you know Australia's greatest ever Paralympic swimmer in, in Ellie and you know really really fortunate that um, you know that she walked through those doors at the time that she did and you know I was able to go on a journey and yeah which saw me be on the Australian team since 2015 and mm. uh, you know been able to travel the world been able to coach amazing athletes, work with some amazing staff members and, you know, really, really fortunate for the opportunities that um, para swimming and uh, coaching on the Australian team has provided me. Mm-hmm. And so you you kind of really kept Ellie in the sport in a, in a lot of ways. Well, I think, you know, I, I think I played a role. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, Ellie's an amazing athlete and I think the key thing that we looked at doing during that period was just finding, you know, what did you love about it? At the time, she started coaching as an assistant and, you know, that I think gave her a new perspective. She started to think about how does she transition her knowledge to others? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking, you know, 12 and unders, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, mm-hmm. you know, learning to swim competitively for the first time. And I think it was enabled her to be able to, I guess, uh, what they say, you know, get off the dance floor and stand on the balcony and, and kind mm-hmm. of look down. And I think she was able to reflect a little bit on terms of, you know, what did she love about swimming? And it was really about reigniting that fire. And, you know, there was lots of people at the time who never believed she'd be able to come back. And I think for anyone who knows Ellie, um, when her back's against the wall, <laughs> um, that's probably when she does her best work. And, you know, digs, she was out there to prove people wrong. And, yeah, digs her heels in and 
tries to prove that naysayers wrong. Yeah, and and I mean, definitely, I think, you know, having, I guess, lit that fire in terms of why does she love what she does um, was a was a really key thing. And, you know, she, she went through a lot of adversity to get back to mm. being, you know, the top of her game. And, um, you know, not many swimmers do a double shoulder reconstruction, one, and then had to wait a period of time before doing the other. And mm. um, it was just all about making sure that the, the reasons for her to, to swim and swim at the highest level were there first. We all knew she was talented. We all knew she was a great athlete. And it's, it's hard when you get to that stage of her career when there's pretty much not a lot left to do. Um, she was a Paralympic gold medalist, a world record holder. Mm. But uh, I think it was really, yeah, just reconnecting with the, the why um, yeah. it was really, really important and just enjoying it. You know, I think that was, that was also a key thing. Mm. Cool. So... Can you talk us through how para swimming works? I mean, it's if you look at it from the sidelines, it can be a little confusing at times because there's all sorts of different impairment types jumping in the pool. There's so many different classes. It, it can be a little tricky to kind of follow. So can you maybe just give us the the, the basic kind of rundown of, of how you describe para swimming? Yeah, the uh, the Reader's Digest version, um, yeah. I, I say to others, it's the, um, look, it, it is, it can be daunting to try and understand the Paralympic program and all the classes and the numbers that go with it. But the most simplest description is that there's 14 classes that separate athletes in terms of different class or uh, classes. And there's the physical impairments. So 10, S10 being the least impaired and S1 being the most severely impaired. So they're at they make up our physical classifications and athletes are classified within those parameters. Uh, we have vision impairments and they're S11, S12 and S13, 13 mm-hmm. being the least impaired and, and 11 being completely blind. And, and this, then S11 athletes will swim with blacked out goggles as well to ensure that, you know, that there is no light to be able to come through their goggles in each race. Mm-hmm. And they require tappers to indicate where the wall is. And then we have our last classification, S14. So intellectually impaired, so it has a diagnosable condition, uh, intellectual condition, and with an IQ under 75 diagnosed before the age of 18. So mm-hmm. that's kind of in a in a nutshell the, I guess the class system that we operate within. And you know I think for lack of better options, it's uh, it's been able to provide a, a fair competition for our athletes to be able to compete against athletes with similar impairment profiles. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a perfect system, but certainly is one that we work within, you know, has been able to provide uh, a really competitive competition on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And what distances are you and, and events are usually competed in? Yeah, so essentially para swimming, I mean, when you look at 14 classes, men's and women's, so that's 28 different classes mm-hmm. in a competition, the Paralympics goes for 10 days. So there is a restricted program. We mainly uh, generally operate in hundreds. The S14s swim the 200 freestyle, um, mm-hmm. as well as some of the lower physical classes and a 400 freestyle and 200 wow. IM. Essentially, uh, the, the, the distance is covered. There is no 8 and 15 hundreds. There's no 200 form strokes for classes. And in some ca- categories, there is even limits on events. So for instance, the SB7 no longer have the 100 breaststroke. Oh, so there right. is little, I guess, differences with each category class. But essentially, generally, you have hundreds of uh, 100 freestyle, 50 freestyle, 100 form strokes, 200 freestyle, 200 IM and 400 freestyle across most categories. Mm-hmm. And that's still a lot of events to run in a 
in a race sort of schedule, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, a 10-day swim meet, I know from a coaching perspective, it's, it's a, a marathon and it's hard yeah. to get your head around how long how long that is. And, you know, for athletes as well, it's a consideration that we, that I spend, you know, with, with some athletes, the, the four years of the, the Paralympic plan and to get them to the Games is, is how do we, I guess, overcome a 10-day swim meet, um, which mm. may see you have an event on day one and an event on the last day as well, um, mm. whilst navigating a multi-sport, multi-nation village and, you know, the third largest global event in the world. And, you know, I think it's a, uh, as I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but mm. certainly athletes can can do a lot of work to get themselves there and undo it very, very quickly um, yeah. if they don't cope with the, with the, I guess, the events in itself being a 10-day program. Yeah, yeah. And so how would you describe the physiological demands of the sport? Yeah, look, in terms of, you know, para-athletes, I, I always believe that we really need to understand the individual and mm-hmm. uh, understand what, you know, each athlete is is able to do and I think you know generally we can probably make Paralympic athletes or athletes with a disability probably more disabled by being too conservative and I think a lot of the time it's about understanding having a two-way conversation with the athlete about what they can do and really Mm -hmm. capitalizing on the the can do and a lot of the athletes that I've worked with majority have been high functioning uh, with various different you know impairment types and profiles but but generally, you know, basic physiological principles apply. You know, probably the big thing that we work on is, is is recovery. How long does it take to recover? And, you know, for an athlete like, say, Ellie Cole, with who was a leg amputee, she recovered quite, I guess, typical to it to an able-bodied athlete mm-hmm. um, where there was a, a couple of arm amputees that I've worked with over my career in a Japanese athlete, May Ichinose, Katarina Roxon from Canada, uh, and Emily Beecroft from Australia. Their recoveries were different. Um, they were arm you know, impaired. So the load from swimming with majority being an upper body activity, you know, recovery for them may have taken longer if we had, say, more mileage in the pool. So mm. they're considerations that we would take that may differ from, from an able-bodied athlete. But, right. but typically, a, a lot of the physiological demands that we ask for, for an Olympic-based athlete is um, certainly capable of that of a Paralympic athlete, just dependent on their impairment profile. Because mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask, what are the times that they're racing? You know, in the in the categories like the S ten and and the S nine. So they're they're times that they're actually competing over the the hundred and and two hundred meters, similar to you know, not far off an Olympic sort of level time. Yeah, look, I, I've always tried to compare. I probably say our male Paralympic athletes are comparable to female Olympic athletes mm-hmm. um, on on a general time basis if we if we, we just looked at how they paced events and 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 so forth so you know like 400 freestyle we, we're looking at you know sub four minutes efforts and and that's mm-hmm. what olympic athletes like Aaron titmus and um, katie ledecky are doing within the 400 so I, i'd always use probably more so benchmarking or targeting to, for male athletes with high high class so whether it be high vision high physical classification mm-hmm. where they're um you know the least impaired that's um that's probably a good ben- benchmarking and pacing tool mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I, I think 
I'll say Blake Cochran um, is an athlete I've worked a lot with. He's um, has no essentially his impairment profile. He has no hands and no feet, so mm-hmm. he has heels and he has essentially the the wrist component, but you know no surface area on either of the uh, either of his four limbs. And and he was able to do a breaststroke start and breakout probably equal to or just backwards of a, an Olympic athlete, male athlete. Mm-hmm. So uh, in some areas they're quite comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately over the, the duration of a race, um, there are some differences male to male. And then I use the, I guess, male to female as a, as a comparison. And uh, and then also then obviously, how do we, what do we do for female para-athletes? We probably just add a consistent time variation onto that um, mm-hmm. and just look at that from a benchmarking tool. But there's so much data now within para-swimming space that we can actually benchmark against either ourselves, our own nation and other nations as well to, to be able to mm-hmm. get a really good target at where they stand in the world. Yeah, and I guess for the for the lower classes, each of them, they kind of have to be benchmarked within their own class because there is no real comparison. Yeah, I think from, as I said, we, we, we're growing in data and I guess like any sport, you know, data's king at the moment, but it's easy to have too much and do nothing with it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think with the lower class athletes, benchmarking against yourself because the impairment profiles are so different the lower the class is um, yep. and it's very very hard at times to be able to find like for like um, yep. and then there's there's so many differences whether it be backgrounds ages uh, is it an acquired injury is it one that's congenital uh, all of those factors you know add up to your impairment profile and say grant scooter patterson who's a you know a great para athletes in in our low class categories and you know there's no one in the world like scooter probably probably actually a good thing that there's not two scooters <laughs> running around there in, in the world uh, that'd be a bit much for all of us but um it's a uh you know for him it's about benchmarking against himself because yep. he swims in a particular way that gets him through the water and you know i know that he, he, he every time he gets into the water he, he's always racing himself to be the better bigger version of himself so yep. um yeah yeah and with the tapping, can you explain that a little bit in terms of for the visually impaired, what does tapping entail? Yeah, so uh, I guess a tapper is it's essentially like a long pole with a, a soft end and, and it's used to, to, I guess, indicate to the athlete where they are in the pool when it comes to the turn. So mm-hmm. obviously with vision impairments, there's lots of different types of impairments but one of the main factors that they struggle with is is perception of where they are in the water and depth perception Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're totally blind obviously all of that is redundant as well so there has someone who stands on on pool deck who taps them at a certain location which is you know uh, anywhere basically inside the flags uh, Mm -hmm. to indicate where where the wall is and uh, tappers are used for both the turn and the finish and I think it's you know it's a it's a key difference and it looks like chaos on pool deck when there's I guess an additional ten people standing at the um, <laughs> at the end of the pool, and there's poles and and whatnot going everywhere. But it's um it's a really important process to allow our athletes to make sure that not only are they able to finish like anybody else in terms of they know where the wall is, but from a safety perspective, yeah. you know, it, it, they do travel at um at some pretty high speeds, and yeah, if you're not ready for it, um they come can come hurtling into the wall quite quickly. So it's a little unique aspect to para swimming but it's a great way to be able to make sure that our vision impaired athletes provided with an equal opportunity and are safe in the water as well yeah because it's not uncommon for some swimmers and particularly para swimmers to actually get concussions because they've either hit somebody else in the pool or they've hit the wall with their head or you know have you have you experienced athletes who've 
ended up with a concussion. Yeah, yeah concussion with vision-based athletes is is not uncommon. I'd, I'd say mm. that we we do put things in place to prevent them as best we can, but um, yeah. you know accidents do happen, and you know I think I've always. I've always been very big on on understanding what they can see. Um, mm. Some vision athletes, they obviously have a visual cue to do what they do. So to understand, it's it's really about discussing what what are, what are you looking? Is it the lane rope? And it might not be the the tee on the bottom of the pool. It might not be, you know, the flags or or the other things that you know an able bodied person would use. Mm-hmm. But it's just understanding what those cues are. And and some of them might be a stroke count. They know that. Once they hit 35 strokes or, you know, 40 strokes, whatever it may be, that, you know, that means that they're pretty close to the end of the pool and mm-hmm. they'll start looking for a visual cue or or start to, you know, prepare themselves for a turn if they don't have a tapper. Um, yep. But even when they do have a tapper, a lot of them understand whether it be stroke counts or just duration of the race, where they are in the water. And, you know, I think it's a good skill for any athlete to have just to understand from a, a race preparation component on what's you know, how many strokes does it take to get to the other end of the pool? You know, we should be able to ask an athlete at any time, what you know, how many strokes does it take you to get one end from one end to the other? And they should have a, a pretty well-educated guess at, uh, at that number. Mm-hmm. And that just shows that their readiness or preparation to, to execute race plans and so forth. So um, our vision athletes don't have the luxury of using the site to, to I guess, I guess, ca- catch up or guess where they are in the water and they have mm. to rely on really good preparation and mental skills to be able to execute race plans and execute skills that others may find a little bit easier. Mm. And, and I guess that means that they've also, there's a need for them to be able to concentrate effectively when they're swimming, not only in training, but particularly in races, probably even more so than, than other athletes. Yeah, look, I, I've had the luxury of coaching quite a few vision impaired athletes and the one take-home I get is that they have to do things differently but their recollection memory and able to recall things is is probably the best I've ever had of any athletes Mm. I took over a program from the great Jan Cameron probably one of the greatest female coaches in swimming and and she used to print off sheets like the program for each of the the vision impaired athletes so they would have a copy and after about a month of trying to reproduce Jan's, I guess, <laughs> uh, favours for the athletes, I, I said, no, nah, we can't keep doing this. I can't keep going to the printer, printing off the program. Do it. It, it was just too much and it yeah. might have been a little bit selfish, but I wanted them to be a little bit more reliant on asking questions and um, and not just have everything there. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I started to deliberately read out the program each and every session and it it was obviously targeted for the vision athletes, but they could recall the entire session from memory and wow. uh, they had to listen, they had to engage and they had to ask questions if they didn't understand. And, uh, you know, a byproduct of all of that was that it was it was targeted for the vision athletes, but ultimately then the, the athletes with intellectual impairment focused and listened during that and asked questions if they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and now physical athletes as well it just provided us an opportunity you know probably a better process in the end to be able to discuss lay out what our object like what our I guess our targets were for the for the Mm -hmm. session and just have an opportunity to be able to I guess lay out the plan rather than you know be time poor I think is is probably Mm. a good excuse of just you know standing at the end of the pool and saying ready set go Um, (laughs) and and, and swimmers are like okay well I guess I've just got to start and not really understand what what they're meant to be doing. 
Yeah, and I think it, it really eliminated all of that. But I'm, I'm a big believer in two-way communication and mm-hmm. um, and discussing and, and asking questions and, you know, challenging in the appropriate moments. But, you know, I think it enabled us to do that. And there'd be times where I've written a session and said, all right, we're going, you know, five and a half Ks today. And, you know, the quick response is, oh, that's 6.3. I mean, they would challenge me on my maths, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I say nine times out nine times out of ten, I'd be right. But even when I wasn't right, I didn't admit it. So I, I just quickly adjusted it whilst their heads were down. So um, <laughs> it was ju- just provided us a really good opportunity to converse, and um, mm-hmm. and you, you get a sense of the athlete as well. I think the the big take home from having that communication is you just get a read of the room and um, if the one person who's normally a little bit more talkative uh, at the morning session is a little bit you know quiet and, and removed then it might be worth you know touching base with them to see what's happening mm. and, you know I think that's a, a really good because we're, we're dealing with humans we're dealing with people and mm. sometimes people are going to have good days and bad days but you don't want them to do that in the in the hallways or in the darkness of you know, out of sight. So yeah. uh, it really did make that engagement really, really important to, to check in with their athletes to find out where they're, where they're at and what they're doing. Mm, awesome. And so how do you manage a training program with athletes with so many different impairments? Yeah, manage um, is, <laughs> is a good word, cope. Now, look, I, I run a program really values-based and I think, you know, the the, the three values that I talk to with with my athletes is attitude, accountability, and respect. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to, to run a high-performance program from 2017 to, to 2022. And, you know, at, at its peak in 2022, I had 12 athletes, but each one of those athletes was there for the right reason. And they were there because they wanted to be. And it's really, really easy to work with athletes that are all heading in the same direction. But I think sometimes... Uh, we we will attract athletes to our programs because the direction of the program is what they need and they might not be there yet. But it's really, really hard to head into a different direction when the majority are all on the same page. And a quote, we, you know, I don't, not a big quota uh, of things, but in terms of attitude, Winston Churchill said, attitude is the little things that can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the values that we really targeted was is that the way that you present yourself and you bring yourself into the environment and it's our workplace mm-hmm. is really really vital to bring an attitude which everyone can benefit from mm-hmm. uh, and it's really really and that's you know whether it be athletes support staff coaches um, anyone who engages in our in our program really really needs to make sure that the attitude that they bring is one that you know is is positive and then it adds value because it only takes one attitude or one that I guess detracts from that space to have a big impact and mm. um, you know so we're, we're really values based around that and the other one like other two is, is accountability we did what we said that that was a key thing is that we, we wanted to have a high level of accountability to what we committed to what we set out to do but most importantly if a coach or a provider made a I guess undertaking or a a promise is probably too big of a word but you know it's we did we did what we said and I think that type of level of accountability really creates a trusting environment Mm-hmm. because everyone knew that we had your back yeah. and we made sure that you know the athletes were equally accountable they had to do certain things and that was just the expectation and I think that really worked because everyone knew that what was asked of them was going to be asked of their teammates mm-hmm. um, as well as asked of the staff and you know accountability was a really big underpinning value 
and the last one was just respect and and respect can i think it's too easy a word respect in terms of oh yeah we just got to be nice to people but it's it's more than that it's 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 about you know respecting yourself and respecting your environment and re- respecting the you know the place in which you are is mm. is a really really important thing because if we can do that and we can hold ourselves accountable to that respect value not only do you become a better person but people experience you better mm. and the environment in which you know you occupy for that for that space of time is 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 going to be you know better for your involvement and you know i'm, I'm really I guess proud that you know in, in 2022 with the 12 athletes that you know I, t- I took in that program really held those values as mm. as core and 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 lived them. But more, most importantly, they they demonstrated behaviours that really aligned with them. And I think that's you know that's when you've really got a great team of people. And yeah, so you know that that it really values led basis for mm-hmm. me in coaching a program and it really does help make sure that all athletes are on the same page heading forward mm-hmm. and so if with those 12 athletes did you have any support on the ground in terms of the a coaching session so for example I could imagine if you said okay we're doing 10 100s for example on this cycle that cycle is different for the different impairment types and so do you do you have somebody else who's kind of monitoring or are they self-monitoring, you know, in terms of their their times and then reporting back at the end? Or do you end up like setting a program that's that's not distance-based but, you know, maybe for one group of athletes it's 10 100s but for another group because those 100s take longer, it may be six 100s instead. Like how do you how do you balance all of that? Yeah, I think it it is about balancing. I think it's when specificity comes to you know comes to a head. I think the way that I've always tried to I guess manage my program is is make sure I have athletes that fit a certain profile to be able to I guess cope with the training demands. Mm-hmm. If if any of them I guess either maybe better than the I guess the, the the average or the majority, then we alter training to suit them. And and also if, if some of them aren't as fast or you know, don't have the endurance of some other athletes, we change it. I guess the rule of thumb I've always used is um, duration of activity. And it's probably mm-hmm. something that we don't do in swimming quite a, enough. Right. Uh, but it is it's probably the biggest learning that I teach coaches around para swimming. I, if I have a male athlete who can do 10 100s, for example, and can hold 105, mm-hmm. then and they're cycling on 120, so they have about 15 seconds rest, and I have, say, a, a, a higher class female athlete who can only hold 125 mm-hmm. um you know she's sub- subsequently five seconds over the, the cycle in which maybe you know the other height you know s14 male is holding mm-hmm. so what i what i would do for there is this that athlete would then do 75s you know for a particular say 10 75s and they can hold then 120 and they're uh-huh. averaging 105 through 75 i think we do it in the gym quite well and mm-hmm. sncs are, are really well versed in altering reps and weights and so forth in swimming I, I think sometimes we can get a bit one-dimensional in our approach and you know it's just you know as you say 10 100s on 130 for example might mm-hmm. be the set but how do we make that work for different people whilst you're still getting what you want out of it so mm-hmm. it might be if you're trying to obtain aerobic capacity gains out of you know that set well how do i achieve that by doing 75s and mm. it really comes down to the duration of activity yeah. um, in which I use as a, as a standard. 
measure and you know one that works really really well i think the 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 thing that you can get stuck on is sometimes altering too much Mm. Um, so then you have to work out because it can be lonely space being everyone else is doing hundreds and you're doing 75s and you know that point of difference so there is ways in which we integrate them in a little bit more and it might be that they do three 100s and then have one 100 break Um, you know Mm -hmm. so there's lots of different ways but I, i really do kind of tap into that duration of activity as being the measure not just stuck in meters or, or mm-hmm. time cycles or, and so forth yeah and what did you see as some of the biggest nutrition challenges for your athletes yeah look i think you know it's a real it's, it's a complex piece because i think sometimes that my biggest learning is trying to work with nutrition dietetics in a, in a silo and just working in in a one you know there's only so much a sports dietitian can do by themselves. And yeah. it wasn't until we really started to, I guess, adopt and, and really live and breathe an integrated service team did we actually start to really make some some really good gains. So I guess the, the biggest one we have is our athletes, I mean, my athletes were anywhere from 16 years of age through to 30, early 30s. Mm. So I yep. had a broad church of, of different you know, athletes and ages and so forth. But the most difficult one is the one that transitions out of high school mm. uh, into university. So those early 20s, especially with female athletes, it's a difficult time um, mm. because your body's just changing so much. And and I think sometimes that we, we try and change too much in, in that time where we really just need to create some understanding, create some really good education, build some really good foundations and building blocks for that time when all the changes start to slow down and stabilize mm. a little bit that we yeah. can really start to capitalize on you know body composition changes muscle mass increases but generally just making sure that they're fit healthy and and well put together in in the sense that um they're able to to compete at their their peak mm-hmm. so yeah I, but I, I think integrated service i mean it's a bit of a hot topic in terms of you know everyone talks about integrated service models and and so forth but it's something I'm really proud of the team that I worked with is that, you know, I linked in our SNC and our and our sports dietitian together because mm-hmm. there was no point in our SNCs building on increased muscle gain yeah. um, if our dietitian wasn't supporting that through, you know, n- nutritional um, intakes and so forth. So mm-hmm. there was times in which, you know, you hear stories of the, the dietitian trying to shift body composition whilst the SNC is trying to do, uh, you know, increase muscle mass mm-hmm. and they're working against each other. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think I would say that it should be uncommon, but I think it is more, un- you know, it's not too un- uncom- uh, uncommon that, you know, those types of things are, are happening just because we're just not having, putting the right people in the room together and, and having those conversations. So, well, and, and I guess the nature I, I, of, the nature of swimming is that there's lots of small there's lots of clubs and and lots of ways that people can get a coach and and so you may have a number of para athletes who are in amongst a whole bunch of able-bodied athletes just in in their home environment with you know a coach who's covering a wide spectrum and perhaps they have their own nutrition support or dietitian and a, an SNC or it might be even the swim coach who's doing the SNC but they're not put together because the athlete hasn't put them together necessarily. The athlete's trying to achieve these support services kind of on their own. That's probably the most challenging sort of scenario that I see. I've seen it, you know, with collegiate level athletes and also just 
athletes who are swimming in their own home clubs with their own home coaches. Yeah, definitely. And I think the greatest, you know, if, if there's a take-home point for athletes in terms of how do I capitalise on how do I leverage the team that I have around me is mm. to make sure they, they talk. And I think, you know, athletes would be surprised how willing people are in, to engage if they if they work together in a team and mm. and and let's talk it from a like a really low resource you know let's say I live in a country area within Australia you know there's a there's a physio in town my sports dietitian is remote via Zoom mm. and whatnot but the power of email and so forth just to be able to connect those people together yep. and you know it might be just you know what can be achieved in two or three emails can be really beneficial because that's when we really start to see. You know, those real positive gains when people start, uh, service providers really start working, I guess, together or having mm. some understanding of what's happening in other spaces, we can really start to to create some, you know, some really good progress. And I think, you know, I, I presented to coaches last year from all various different levels in swimming and, you know, I, I just said, connect your team. Um, yeah. And as a coach, it's really, really important understand who your team is, who's mm. really, really important people within that team, and then make sure they're connected. And, you know, we, we certainly can't ask them to do work for free and we certainly can't ask them to, uh, I guess, come to training sessions and during the week and all. Some of those would be unrealistic, but you'd be surprised about the amounts of service providers that would increase their level of engagement or interest in, in an athlete when they're working together mm. as a part of a multidisciplinary team. And, um, yeah. you know, I think it, it's a really, really powerful thing that whether it's led by athletes, I, I hope it would be led by coaches to mm. understand that you who appreciate the value in that. But connecting your team is, is really, really important. So what recommendations would you have for potential para swim coaches in terms of how do they get into para swimming and perhaps from your experience what are some of the key things that you've learnt that you could pass on to those potential coaches? I think the great thing about para swimming is that there's always more to learn and you know there's probably a daunting component of it but you know there's I've been on the Australian team since 2015 and, you know, I've coached 40 athletes onto the Australian team and, and mm. I'm still learning. Um, yep. I'm still learning about different impairment types and how that affects training and, and different ways of doing things. And I've got a great international connection with different coaches from around the world. And, you know, we might solve a problem here in Australia, but, um, you know, the Canadians, they're experiencing it for the first time and, and we mm. might have a problem here in Australia and they've already solved it 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important that you, you have a great network. But I think the, the, the key thing to understand is that, or at least the one benefit that I've seen in, in my time within para swimming, it's made me a better coach. Mm. I've literally been able to coach better because I've had to look at the person in front of me and I've had to look and go, how do I, what do I do? Because there is no textbook for some of these mm. athletes. There is yeah. no model. And it makes me think about, well, what are the most basic factors that are in swimming? And and not, not to, to dumb it down too much, but we work in two forces. We work in propulsion and we work in drag. Mm. And if we break it down as simply as that, I, I have to decrease drag and have to increase propulsion mm -hmm. and have to make sure that one doesn't compromise the other. And mm. when I do that, 
with coaching any athlete, I, I have to make sure I look and go, well, how does this athlete move? How do they function? Mm. I've got to work with my physios and understand and go, well, what can they do? What yep. Am I asking them to do something that functionally is just not possible? Yep. I've got to work with my SNC and say, is, is this a strength-based issue? Can, can they be stronger? And if they are stronger, what's the consequence? My physiologist, I've got to work with them in terms of, you know, can they, you know, do what they you know, do they have the aerobic capacity for me to to do the 400 freestyle? And and if they don't, where do they sit? Are they an anaerobic mm. beast that I need to be able to tap into those energy stores? Yeah. So there's there's experts that you can tap into who will be able to help you. But I think the biggest take home, and there's a really great athlete with disability advocate and teacher and in Wendy Ross. Wendy has been around Australian swimming and para swimming for a very, very long time and now works in Queensland quite a bit with the, with these young and up-and-coming athletes. And her biggest, you know, catch phrase is it's a body in water and we just need to teach a body in water. And I, I really gravitated to that and mm-hmm. I'm thankful for Wendy for sharing that with me because that's how simple it is. We, we've mm. really just got to look at this body and water and how do we make it faster. Mm. And, you know, I've been really fortunate because it's been ma- made me a better coach. It's made me ask questions. It's made me think about how I do things. But most importantly, I've been able to do and I haven't been, I guess, constrained or limited by what I believe to be the best model. Um, mm. You know, I'm sure coaches in Australia after, you know, that 2000 period of the great, you know, Ian Thorpe's and Grant Hackett's, there was probably a limitation on going, well, that's the best there is. And, you know, how great that is. And there's probably, there was probably lots of attempts to model and Mm. to reproduce that model in in all of our athletes through that period. Um, But it didn't work. And we do have, (laughs) yeah, well, There's only certain athletes that it would work for. Well, that's it. And, and I think sometimes that can be a, a, almost a burden and, and, and yeah. probably in the US with Michael Phelps, it, it was mm. probably, a, you know, almost a burden. It was great, you know, an unbelievable athlete and talented, but what a burden for coaches going forward to go, well, how do I, who's the next Michael Phelps? Who's the next Ian Thorpe? And, mm. you know, we do have that in, in Paralympic space where, you know, there's some great athlete. Who's the next Matt Cowdery? Who's the next Ellie Cole? Mm. But the way we get there is is completely different. And each yep. athlete has that little bit, that, that difference and that's, um, uniqueness that's um we really need to you know strip it back and look at it and go well it how do i make it faster and, and how do i make this body travel through the water faster and mm. you know I, i've really enjoyed my time coaching and it's probably the most excited i've been in coaching because it, i felt like i've been able to actually do more so than you know being constrained by what i believe to be a perceived model of what i need to be doing so mm. yeah and so for athletes is it simply just find yourself a coach who's willing to look at you know how does how do they move that body through water like there's there's so many different I guess in Australia we're such a big swim based country there's lots of swim coaches and lots of opportunities but I'm also thinking of other countries as well in terms of how does a para-athlete or someone who may be you know potentially a, a good para swimmer how do they how do they find a coach yeah, good question. You know, I think, you know, we're so well resourced now and that the Paralympic movement has been so well, I guess, publicised and has such a, I guess, a, a standing within within the world that, you know, your first place that anyone should go to is their National Paralympic Committee, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be, you know, in Australia or anywhere around the world. Every every country has one yeah. um, and, it, and it's, it's a touch base point and they'll put you in touch with the best person for you to talk to in terms of 
taking those first steps. And we mm. spoke earlier about classification, and that's basically the first step into mm. into para swimming or any para sport is is to receive a classification. Do you have an eligible impairment which yep. makes you eligible to compete within the Paralympic space? That's your that's your first, I guess the driver's license, so to speak, of, of, mm-hmm. of your sporting career. And um, once you have that, you know, really it's about making sure that you have a network or uh, understand who, who to ask questions of. And, you know, that would be your first point of call. But if I'm an athlete out there and I'm, I'd be looking for someone who can offer me the time, who can offer me the, the advice and the expertise to be able to move forward. And I think for young people, it, you have to love what you do. Mm. We spoke earlier about Ellie and finding for Ellie after double shoulder reconstructions, it was about finding that passion and what she really enjoyed about sport. And, mm. you know, that was in an athlete who achieved already so much. And I think sometimes at, we miss that. Also, not only so much, but also at a very young age, because at, in 2012, mm. she would have been only in her early 20s at that point 20s yeah yeah and 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 almost seen as a seasoned campaigner in mm. her early 20s you know mm. so if we, if we take around what was the important factors for her to reach the highest level again it was about enjoying herself and and, and really loving what she does and i think that's important mm. for any swimmer looking for you know where do i train what do i do and how do i do and, and you've got to find the love for it and i think something that we really do well at times in australia is we we, we sell the dream and the dream of, of in, you know, enjoying yourself in water, it's about enjoying yourself with friends and having an opportunity and a pathway that if you want to and you want to continue on this journey, there's opportunities for you. And I think, yeah. you know, there's some great countries around the world that, that do this really, really well. And I think, uh, you know, the time for, for athletes with a disability to step forward and, and showcase their, you know, amazing talents and and yeah, just what they can do. And, and it may not be the Paralympics. It may not mm. be, you know, that, that every athlete will make, you know, the Paralympics and, and that's okay. But the, if a, a coach once told me that if the worst thing that you can get out of being involved in swimming is, is you get fit, you get healthy, you get friends, you, you enjoy yourself outdoors or in the water, mm. then that's not half bad. Um, yeah. And I think... <laughs> I think yep. sometimes we, we can overcomplicate this, but if you can take away those four things, you know, how lucky yep. um, can you be? Yeah, awesome. Wow, thanks, Nathan, for all of your insights. It's been wonderful sort of hearing about your approach and, and also just understanding para swimming a little bit more. So before we let you go, though, there's one last question, and that's what's your favourite food? Oh, um i'm i'm a pizza guy um i think i think pizza simple nothing too uh too out there but i, I yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure everywhere i've traveled around the world you're pretty much able to find pizza so i think that's mm-hmm. that's always been a safe bet for me especially in a village uh i know liz you've been to many a village situation <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's ever gotten food poisoning off uh off pizza well, so pizza, um, no. i think um, it, it's a safe it's a safe option uh when you travel around the world What's your favourite topping, though? Oh, um, I, I I enjoy any any protein, so um, uh-huh. I'm, I'm happy to to try. I, recently, we were in Portugal, and a group of coaches we went out and we had a pizza in Portugal, and, and it seems in Europe they add corn to a lot of things, so it's uh-huh. a lot of corn on pizzas. So I'm not sure if that's going <laughs> to catch on in Australia. I know we do pineapple on pizzas, which is probably not. <laughs> Uh, the well, Italian that probably. Um, that was going to be my next yeah. question. Are you pineapple on or not? 
Yeah, look, I'm I'm put it on. I, I think <laughs> anyone around the world knows that Australians like pineapple, so we'll um yeah, definitely pineapple on pizzas for me. That's that's okay. But yeah, I'm not an anchovies fan or anything like that. Any mm-hmm. any anything too too intense, you can I'll pass for that. But um, uh-huh. yeah, safe to say, pizza anywhere around the world, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nathan. I really appreciate it, and and your experience is absolutely yeah fantastic to to hear from and we wish you all the best thanks for having me liz and um yeah all the best i think nathan's given us a great insight into the world of para swimming and the fact that it's really about looking at each individual athlete and how do you make them faster in particular i really like the encouragement to coaches and to athletes to make sure that their team of support staff are talking to each other. Swimming is one of those sports where often athletes are working with coaches outside of a training environment that has everything included in it. And so that communication and connection is is super important for making sure that everyone's working towards the same goals. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And if you would like to share it with your family and friends, please do so. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to David Hoff, who is the National Para Ice Hockey Coach for Team USA.